Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, presented by the American Friends of Rabi Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society, the economy, real estate, medicine, technology, and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plout. I'm the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3 National American Charitable Organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzchak Rabin. The hospital is a model of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission. Join our community of friends. Visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center online, afrmc.org, via our website and social media outlets on Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube, in our Facebook page and discussion group. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. Today's Global Connections topic is America's race crisis, what to do about it. Thank you to our very special guest, Professor Eddie Gloud of Princeton University, Professor Annette Gordon-Reed of Harvard University, and Rabbi David Saperstein of the Religious Action Center. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Thank you, Josh. This past year has felt like a national stress test. We've been tested by the pandemic, by the economic crisis that it wrought, by the social isolation imposed by public health measures, and by the strains of political differences and racial differences. In 2020, it was unmistakable that black and white Americans still experience American life differently and unequally in their encounters with police, in who has the jobs that you can do from home and who has to venture out into public spaces, in the risk of infection, severe illness and death, and in the question of whose votes are more likely to be challenged. Half a century ago, a presidential commission warned America might divide into two radically unequal societies, one black and one white. We have come a long way since then, I'd say, but we clearly have a very long way to go. How do we do that? Well, we have a panel today that's exceptionally qualified to address that very question, and we'll hear from them in one-on-one -on -one interviews and then in answers to your questions, which you can submit by using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. 
Our first panelist is Professor Eddie Glau, Jr., Chair of African-American Studies at Princeton. He's the author of such books as Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, and In a Shade of Blue, Pragmatism and the Politics of Black America. He's written about the role of the Black church, and he has a very familiar face and voice to viewers of MSNBC, where he is a regular contributor. Professor Gloud, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. It's my, it's my pleasure. I mentioned earlier some of the ways in which uh, whites and blacks experience American life differently. Thinking of the past year of pandemic closures, protests, uh, how would you describe this past year for African-Americans? Well, it's been a time of um, a, a kind of racial reckoning, a kind of broader sense that the country uh, uh, stood at a kind of crossroads, if that makes sense. Uh, you, we, we are dying disproportionately. Uh, because of the global pandemic. Uh, the economic impact has been uh, clearly felt. So the fact that the economy is in tatters, we're disproportionately represented among those who are considered essential workers. Uh, our housing insecurity has been kind of made explicit. The healthcare disparities that are rooted in kind of racial inequality have, have been made explicit. And you combine that with the fact that the police, even in the midst of an, in the midst of a pandemic, are still killing us in some ways. It has been a moment of profound trauma um, and reckoning in some ways. Yeah. Well, I, I have a question for you to. Uh, uh, I, I, but I, I can imagine two two audiences uh, whom I'd like to ask you about, and perhaps the answer is the same to both of them. First is an African American who uh, might be excused for feeling some cynicism, feeling that. The problems we're talking about have existed for a long time and that the, the memory of the American conscience often proves very short. And second is an audience of white Americans who feel truly disturbed by the inequalities displayed by the past year, but wonder what, what can we do? What causes can we support that are likely to not just make us feel virtuous, but actually lead in the direction of societal change? So the answer for, for both is what do we do? Uh, first, if the answer is different to our black viewer. Well, you know, I think it's important for us to understand that we live in a society in which uh, our social and political and economic arrangements are reflections of a, what I call the value gap, this belief that, that white people matter more than others. Uh, and that belief uh, animates so much of American life, and it is the source of the distribution of advantage and disadvantage. So uh, to uh, those who are cynical about America's, uh, you know, um, you know, changing, about the country changing. It has everything to do with this through line, that if we don't uproot this belief that some people, because of the color of their skin, ought to be valued more, ought to have access to advantage in a different way, then we will find ourselves on this hamster wheel over and over and over again. Um, and so I think part of the way in which we address that is we begin to tell the truth. We bear witness. In my latest book, uh, Begin Again, I try to write about this, right? Mm -hmm. For our for 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 the um, for for the other viewer uh, who sees this and wonders how and might how might we change it how might we address it how might we uh, respond to it the question I would have to ask is what is your conception of justice what is your idea of a of, of a just set of arrangements that we have to break free from this this model of racial justice or racial equality as as a philanthropic enterprise, a charitable gesture, which we can turn to. What is your conception of a just society? If you believe that a just society 
presumes that if you work 40 hours a week, that you should have earn a living wage, then you know what you should be doing. If you believe that everyone should be treated equally under the law and the data suggests that they're not, then you know what you should be doing. So the answer to the question is not about how might you engage in a charitable gesture to virtue signal, but how might you act on behalf of making America a more just society? But it seems to me if you were to engage in a political gesture, I'm not using gesture disparagingly, uh, that that uh, uh, brought us more toward equal justice, what would that be in 2021? It could be uh, a range of things. It could it could involve um, uh, supporting the George Floyd Act. Uh, it could involve uh, a range of, of 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 actions around criminal justice reform and police police reform. Um, uh, supporting uh, 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 the repeal of qualified immunity, uh, trying to figure out how to decriminalize the code. So there are specific ways in which one could enter. Um, what I think we need broadly, uh, Robert, is is a is a public infrastructure of care. But that's a different different discussion for a different time. Uh, let me ask you this: in in liberal discourse, it, it's very common to hear an appeal for a justice. Uh, and equal opportunity for African-Americans, followed by a litany of other groups worthy of our concern. Uh, women, Latinos, gays, lesbians, trans, people with disabilities, persons of color, which includes many immigrants. Uh, what do you say to somebody uh, who says, like, I think as a, as a nation, we morally owe something to African-Americans and Native Americans uh, uh, for redress for slavery and displacement. And those... Unique claims uh, are muddled by this long and seemingly getting longer roster of aggrieved minorities. No, I think I think that's that's misguided in some ways, right? Um, because the, the 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 subordinate value is justice, and each of those identity claims, uh, to be clear, are efforts to orient us to the injustice that is perpetrated against those particular groups. So, what does it mean to invoke? Uh, the question of gender. Well, I mean, it seems to me that differential pay for the same work is an unjust reality. And you can't talk about it unless you're able to, unless you invoke, you know, how women are treated, the way in which patriarchy evidences itself in this society. We can't talk about, right, the ways in which uh, uh, certain uh, uh, laws discriminate against uh, same-sex love. You can't, you can't, so identity politics at its root in uh, all of its various manifestations are really questions about justice. Right? What does it mean to have a more just society? And if it's the case, they're deeper. Of course, there are longstanding uh, evidence, longstanding examples of, of the evidence of, of racism, of the evidence of white supremacy, of the contradictions at the heart of our society. But that should not lead us to subordinate other justice concerns. We're trying to build a more just society, it seems to me, at the end of the day. Is there something inherently preferable about uh, solutions to problems of inequality that are universal uh, in, in the way that Social Security ultimately became universal or Medicare, as opposed to being uh, specifically targeted at, at groups that have been uh, discriminated against uh, in the past? I don't I don't think so. I mean, obviously, a just society means that, you know, uh, uh, that there, there's equity and, and there's equality. We don't want to conflate those two. Uh, 
But look, this idea of lifting all boats, this idea of, of the political uh, possibility of, of responding to specific forms of, of, of oppression by way of, of universal remedies, it doesn't really work. Racial inequality in the United States, to bring up a specific example, Brother Robert, is, is the result of deliberate policy. Mm-hmm. At the very moment in which the vaunted American middle class came into existence in post-World War II America, through New Deal policies, through the GI Bill, Black folk were cut out. We were not included. There's a reason why there's a wealth gap. There's a reason why there's an education gap. And the only way to remedy policy decisions will be with direct policy remedies, it seems to me. Okay, well, we have much more to talk about, and we'll talk about it in the Q and A section, uh, which will will uh, come up at, uh, in about twenty minutes, I suppose. Uh, you, by the way, out there, can submit your questions by using the Q and A button at the bottom of your screen. Uh, Professor Eddie Loud, thanks a lot uh, for your for your comments. Um, our next panelist is Professor Annette Gordon-Reed, who holds a university professorship at Harvard University. Uh, she's a professor of history, uh, but she has equally been a professor of law at Harvard and at New York Law School. Uh, her book, The Hemingses of, Montice- of Monticello, about the family enslaved by Thomas Jefferson and their descendants, uh, won both a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award uh, for history. When somebody wins both a Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, I don't know what the equivalent is of being the MVP and and uh, the MVP of the All-Star Game, the, the, the Super Bowl, but it's, a, it's, it's something like that. In addition, uh, she once served, by the way, as counsel to the New York City Department of Corrections. Uh, Professor Annette Gordon-Reed, thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Uh, and first, I wonder if you can answer the, the same question that I put Teddy Glad at first, which is, what do you say to someone out there, either separately or together to a, a, a white and black uh, uh, viewer, uh, what do I do now? What, what what concretely can we do to move the ball farther down the field toward some kind of racial equity? Well, I think a lot of it, as Professor Gloud said, I would agree with a lot of what he said. But I think there's also the question of how you deal with the people around you on a day-to-day basis, how you respond when people say things that are racist, when you respond when people deny that there have been problems Uh, racial problems in the country. I think a lot of this has to do with whites being willing to confront one another. It's a very tough thing to confront family members and friends, people who you love and who you depend upon, uh, when they say things or do things that are racially problematic, when they do things that are racist. And I think that there's just a lot of talking that we have to do, that whites have to do to one another, because it's, you know, Black people, people of color can't make whites feel a certain way. You can't make other people feel a certain way, but you have a better shot if if you, there's a better shot at this, if it's coming from the people that they know and people who are around them. And, you know, the civil rights movement was a matter of blacks standing up, but it was also whites standing up saying, you know, whatever it is that I get out of this system, it's not enough to make me ignore these kinds of things. And they stood against family and friends and sometimes brought family and friends alone. It isn't always a, a yeah. you know, a conflict that causes people to fall out. So I, I just think that there is more work to be done on a day-to-day basis uh, in this area. And that's, that's the, the way to make change, I think. And on a political basis? On a political basis, getting a support candidates who are anti-racist, uh, support policies that are anti-racist, and vote, do this, become a part of the political process. I think so much of this is 
requires people being active. So on a, on a personal level, talking to people, as I said, but also in, in terms of politics, pay attention to what your political leaders say. If you see people trying to divide people on the basis of race, don't support those kinds of people. Support people who are in favor of bringing people together. Something big happened in Georgia uh, this year. Both Senate seats went uh, went Democratic, and one of them went to an African-American man, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock. Uh, do you see Georgia as a one-off uh, development uh, long, uh, long in the making, or are the Carolinas and the Gulf Coast states uh, capable of similar changes? Or, or my home state, Texas. Mm-hmm. I mean, they tried really, really hard with that. Um, I, I don't think it's a one-off. I think this was an inspirational moment. And I think Stacey Abrams and the many people who worked with her really showed people how to do it. And it's likely that, that this is something that could be replicated in other places. And people will certainly try to do it because it seemed miraculous uh, and all things sort of came together on that particular point. But I, I, I do think that this might be important for the future. We've just had a change of presidents uh, this year. And uh, it, it reminded me uh, when I just read your most recent book, uh, which is probably about the most disastrous change of presidents that the country has ever has ever had. It's uh, you wrote the uh, Times book series on the American president's book on Andrew Johnson. Yes. Uh, who was, who succeeded Abraham Lincoln, of course, and who gutted everything in reconstruction that might've mm-hmm. led to some racial mm-hmm. justice. Uh, we may not have that big an item on our agenda right now, but how important is it for who's in the white house with or without a majority in the Congress? How important is that element of national leadership? Well, I think Johnson's situation showed it's very, very important because the president is seen as a symbol of the nation. It's the bully pulpit. That's a cliche, but it's the truth. The president is there in front of everybody. And the kind of leadership that the president exercises is important. It wasn't just that Johnson tried to destroy everything that the Congress was doing in order to bring black people into citizenship. It's that people saw him doing it. Uh, There were letters from people in the South who said, you know, we would have accepted whatever terms the North gave us, but he gave us hope for a white man's government. So even if it was the the, uh, Republicans beat him back and they, you know, they overrode vetoes and so forth. But it was the symbol of a president standing there saying, you know, we're not going as far as these people want us to go. That emboldened lots of people around the country. So the president just as John Kennedy was seen as sending lots of young people uh, into public service, inspiring people to do that, what the president does really, really matters. How he talks, how or she talks, maybe one day, uh, really counts. And that's, you know, leadership really matters. So, you know, even if the president is not winning all of the battles, the way he conducts himself is important to the people who are watching. The, the Centers for Disease Control uh, reported recently on the decline of life expectancy in the first half of last year, the beginning of the of the pandemic. And the numbers were uh, were, were just terribly discouraging. Uh, after many years of general increases for life expectancy, mm-hmm. uh, Americans on average uh, lost a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, for non-Hispanic whites, the drop was eight-tenths of a year from 78.8 years to 78. For blacks, the drop was bigger and the starting point was a lot lower from 74.7 years to 72 years. That's almost a three-year difference, mm-hmm. three times the experience that, uh, uh, that, that whites experience. What, what, is a, 
what is a possible solution or, or a set of steps that might lead to a solution to a problem that glaring? Well, it will take national action. I mean, one of the things that happened here is we saw back to this notion of presidential leadership, there was a vacuum at the federal level, not a lot of coordination between the federal government and the states, sort of a free for all um, for, you know, states trying to get PPE and other things. It was, there was sort of an abdication of responsibility. So what has to happen and what seems to be happening now is a national effort melded to state efforts to try to turn this thing around. But a lot of this has to do, obviously, with poverty, with inequality. It's a bigger question. The medical question is huge, obviously, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there's a bigger part of it. And that has to be addressed by addressing the question of economic inequality in this country that not only affects African-Americans, obviously, and people of color, but just in general, uh, the gap between extremely wealthy and the extremely poor is growing, and that determines what kind of health care you have. Also, health care, uh, the health care crisis. I mean, the United States, uh, this is, again, everybody knows this, alone among the industrial nations, doesn't really have uh, health care for all. So that is something that has to be on the cards as well. We have to, and there's a racial component to this, but basically the basic understanding about a right to health care has to be there. That's an that's a universal solution. That's, that's a universal. We have solution. this problem. Uh, do you see something especially attractive, uh, perhaps just in, uh, practically speaking, about universal uh, solutions as opposed to narrowly targeted ones? Well, I think you have to do both. The advantage of universal is that you don't stir people up. I mean, you know, everybody gets something, and that's that. You begin the process of knitting the country together by people sharing something. That's. I think that that's critical Um, and getting used to government doing things, the things being accomplished. But if there are when there are pockets of particular problems, there has to be a focus on that as well. So I think it has to be it has to be both. Well, Annette Gordon-Reed, Professor Gordon-Reed, stick with us. In 10 minutes, we'll, we'll come back to you for, for questions. But we now turn to our third panelist, uh, who is Rabbi David Saperstein, uh, Director Emeritus of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, where he spent more than 30 years uh, as director and chief legal counsel. He's a lawyer in addition to being a rabbi. Uh, over the years, David Saperstein was on the boards of many human rights and civil rights organizations, including 27 years on the board of the NAACP. Uh, in the Obama administration, he served as U.S. Ambassador for Religious Freedom. Uh, David Saperstein, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Robbie. You've been around and uh, working on civil rights issues and religious issues, I should say, as well, for for, for decades. What's different about the, the political landscape today, and, and uh, what does that say about what kinds of, of uh, federal action are possible? Clearly, we're at a moment in terms of race issues in America where there is a sense of immediacy, um, a sense of urgency, a sense of moral compulsion that we have accepted a structural form of structural forms of racism um, for far too long. And it's been a wake-up call, a kind of shofar blast um, to the nation, a whole series of events, including the George Floyd uh, tragedy, um, that uh, has called us to action at this particular time. 
But the term crisis, you know, is both a, a, a call to, uh, to arms, so to speak, but it also can be a deceptive um, uh, term because it makes us think somehow there's something different going on now than it's been going on for four centuries here in the United States. Um, structural racism in the form of slavery and the so much Jim Crow in the form of you know, structural limitations on uh, people of color in America uh, is one of the great original sins of America. It is endemic in our society. Um, and we shouldn't be fooled by the term crisis to think that that this is new in any kind of way. It is just a, a reawakening that we have to deal with this. And there are steps that we can take. You asked about what can be done and, you know, far up on that list, in addition to our own reflection about white privilege, about structural racism, about unconscious bias in ourselves, in our community, in our organizations we're part of. Um, commitment to, I would just lift up over and above what we heard from my distinguished panelists, um, is HR1 that is going to, to move before the Congress um, on a fast track that would restore vote, the voting rights protections that the Supreme Court struck down, um, that would make voting so much easier um, in America in a whole range of ways, that would restrict excessive gerrymandering um, and would address a lot of the systemic issues that are barriers to the fulfillment of the Voting Rights Act and the dream that every person ought to have equal rights in general and and equal voting rights in particular so that every citizen has a chance to shape the future of this country. It's a, it's a commonplace to observe that politics are extremely polarized in Washington uh, these days. Uh, the, uh, uh, this is the John, the, the, the bill that's named for John Lewis, I believe, HR, uh, HR one. Of the John Lewis bill. Later. John, uh, it, I can't imagine a bill of that sort qualifying for approval by reconciliation, which is the, the rule of the Senate that will permit perhaps $1.9 trillion to be spent, maybe uh, without getting any Republican votes. Uh, can you imagine, is there enough support across the aisle for the reforms or the guarantee in HR1 uh, that it could actually pass this, uh, this Senate? Uh, or is it, uh, is it just... Let's see. Not not popular enough with Republicans. As you look back, uh, Robert, over the last century, in the 20th century, um, almost every single achievement of social justice in America happened because of a bipartisan coalition of decency on Capitol Hill and multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, nonpartisan coalitions or bipartisan coalitions in communities across America. Whether we're talking about the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the environmental movement, the great society programs. Um, so many of the great achievements we had uh, happened because of a bipartisan coalition of decency. The breakdown of bipartisanship is one of the most dangerous developments, the hyperpartisanship that marks this area of most dangerous aspects of American political life at a time we need cooperation. This bill that goes back to core principles of uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, that was reauthorized the Voting Rights Act over and over and over again by almost unanimous margins until just the last few years um, uh, here is going to be a real test of whether or not um, the Republican Party is going to join to remedy violations of some of our most core values. 
I, I still remain hopeful that uh, that the events of recent uh, weeks will shake up enough people that uh, that there will be bipartisanship on this. Um, but it will be a fascinating test about the future politics in America. But in fact, there are states that are taking up after after the election of 2020, in which because of the pandemic, a number of states decided remarkably to make it easier to vote. Uh, that that it was it, the ability to vote was was challenged by by fear of infection, and so we made it that much easier to vote, and turnout was phenomenal uh, uh, for, for everyone. Some of those states are now going back to to making it more difficult to vote again, or they're they're considering legislation. So, twenty twenty one by bills that would restrict voting rights have been introduced in some state legislatures uh, cumulatively across the country. There have been. Um, you, you reminded me of one of my favorite bits of Washington trivia that in the when the Civil Rights Act was passed, there were all of thirty three Republican senators. And 27 of them voted for the Civil Rights Act. A few weeks later, the party nominated one of the six who voted against the Civil Rights Act for president, Barry Goldwater, and uh, who lived to to say he regretted that vote. But um, uh, that that's where the party went. Um, the well, religious action. Well, yes, it's that kind of comment that has earned you the reputation as one of the most erudite and brilliant <laughs> journalists of our generation. It so, only, uh, it only comes you. from from reading the works of very interesting writers. The Religious Action Center represents Reform Judaism. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I can attest uh, as a member of a, a Reform congregation that engagement in civil rights and the promotion of diversity is a, is typically a much discussed principle uh, of, of the movement. Uh, what more can religious institutions do to try to advance us toward greater racial equity? Well, look, all of us have core principles that speak to the equality of every human being and the notion and a rejection of what is at the core of what racism is all about. The dignity and value of every human being based in the notion that we are created in the image of God and for the Jewish uh, community, a whole range of interpretations of the Bible that ask why were we all descended from one couple? Why was Adam made from the dust of the four corners of the earth so that None of us could claim that the merit of our ancestors was greater than anyone else's, says the Mishnah. Um, uh, we're all, all equal before God, or to take the words of a classic uh, medieval Lagata compilation, I call heaven and earth to witness that whether one be Gentile or Jew, man or woman, slave or free man, the divine spirit rests on each in accordance with their deeds. Um, this idea is every major faith traditions has this idea of the dignity, the value, um, uh, the equality of uh, all humanity. Um, and that is a kind of radical notion that we desperately need today. And most religious groups speak out on all the forms of discrimination and persecution that were alluded to by the two former um, uh, speakers so so keenly and the way they lifted it up. We need a kind of recognition of a need for a radical intersectionality that makes real this idea of 
that fundamental value of every human being, not just to pay lip service to it, but to make it actually the center of our political uh, programs and to recognize that no group will be safe and secure for discrimination and persecution so long as any group or any people can suffer such discrimination. And at a time we've seen such an escalation of hate crimes and hate speech um, uh, in our country, standing together in coalition on these issues is absolutely indispensable for the future of our country. And I think the religious communities increasingly recognize the special role that they have to play in raising up those moral values. So Rabbi David Saperstein, Director Emeritus of the uh, Religious uh, Action Center. And uh, uh, let's bring back uh, Annette Gordon-Reed and Eddie Gloud and uh, get to some of the questions which our, our viewers have submitted. Uh, one of them is from an anonymous attendee is, uh, what can, quote, regular people do about current voter suppression efforts? Uh, who would like to answer that? Annette, Annette Gordon-Reed, would you like to try? Well, let's have Professor Gloud try. Professor Gloud try, okay. Oh, in some ways I would, I would echo something that uh, Professor Gordon-Reed laid out in her, in her talk with you. Uh, that that is, you know, they're, they're, in our everyday lives, we have to make choices. We have to uh, we have to respond in very specific ways, and so there are efforts uh, on the ground in your particular community uh, to register folks to vote. We saw this in in Georgia. We saw the New Voter Project. We New Georgia Project. We saw uh, Project South. We saw uh, Stacey Abrams' organization. We saw uh, the API community. There are organizations right where you live who are doing this work. And what you should do is seek them out. Join them, you don't have to invent the wheel. Join them in that effort and do that sort of work. So there's, there, in other words, there's an ecosystem already within your environment of people doing that work. You can join them and, 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 and help us in some ways do the, do the ground, the grunt work in some ways, saving our democracy, so. To echo Miss Ella Baker, it's right in front of you. It's right in front of you. <laughs> it's a very, that's a much more erudite citation than uh, <laughs> uh, than I made uh, earlier. Uh, here is a, uh, a question from Jonathan Gerard, who asks: I wonder if the July, if the January sixth assault on Congress might become a historic event marking the end of white nationalism as a force in America, uh, likely taking a few generations to work itself out, given how slowly. Social change can occur, but a significant turning point, nonetheless, uh, was was January sixth. Do you think it has prospects to to become a a, a a turning point that changes the thinking of many Americans? Who would like to take that? Well, Professor? I could take. I could start by saying, you know, as someone who writes about the beginning, the start of the country, uh, the beginning of the country. This is has been a real moment for historians who, who do that. Uh, I don't know that it, it means that it's going to disappear because it's always been here. Uh, you know, they've had Klan marching down the streets uh, in the 30s and so forth. I mean, it's there, but I, I'm hopeful that now that people see what this leads to, if, if we don't get to the point of trying to whitewash it, which seems to be what's happening now, I think it could be a turning point. I, I don't think that people should give up, uh, should stay on it and make sure that people realize what an assault 
this actually was and not to play it down in any way, but they're trying. But I, I think that it's it's for the people who really care about this country to make sure that people realize how awful that actually was. And so may, maybe it would be, but that's mm. that could be an end result. Certainly uh, was notable that the Confederate flag was was carried in this in this action and that that was uh, not uh, and I, not passive. And I would and I would and I would want us to juxtapose what happened on January 5th with what happened on January 6th. Mm-hmm. On January 5th, we saw the certification of the election results in Georgia, mm-hmm. where the state of Georgia that produced Newt Gingrich in Cobb County, that produced that horrific image in 1992 of Bill Clinton and Sam Nunn standing in front of um, Stone Mountains Correctional Center with black vote with black prisoners behind them in white prison uniforms. Mm-hmm. That January 5th announced that that politics was actually dead in Georgia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that the demographic shifts were already made, had made themselves known and the organizing. So juxtapose that moment, which you might read as the crown of a new, a new America emerging with a moment in January 6th, which is people, which were people cleaving to an America that seems to be dying. And so it's in that juxtaposition that we know, not necessarily that it might be the death, the death, you know, the death knell of, of white nationalism in the country, but we definitely find ourselves at a crossroads where we have to choose which America we're going to, we're going to embrace. David Saperstein, thoughts on that? Oh, I mean, it, it, you know, January 6th was a wake-up call to us about how well-organized and dangerous the far-right can be. Most of the violence that has manifested itself in hate crimes and in prejudicial statements that have emanated from extremists um, has come from the right. Um, and uh, it, it will take us a long time to undo this. Um, the public opinion polling that shows still significant support for President Trump, new poll out uh, indicating like 40 percent of uh, of Americans see him as a, a, a real patriot. Um, uh, it, it is really a, a distressing um, a testimony to how deeply endemic some of these attitudes are and how far we have to go. Uh, it will be a slow process. I think uh Rabbi Gerard's right on that. Um, but uh, it's one that we're only going to win if we are all in it together. And I think that's uh, the important insight of uh, this moment in history. Well, one other thing I'd like to yes. say, too, about that is it's a lot of this depends on, well, we'll be influenced by the media. And mm-hmm. I, it, there's been really a sort of a disturbing phenomenon of the people who still refuse to accept the election results on television, on the shows, talking and not and being well being challenged, but the very fact that they're there every week, all the time doing this, if this is going to continue, it's going to make it harder. So yes, ordinary citizens have stuff to do too, but we're up against a real problem here because of the the sensationalness of, of it is apparently attractive in some ways to some forces and that if that kind of thing continues it's going to make the job harder and harder here's a question from an anonymous attendee uh how would you describe the current relationship uh, between the black and jewish communities in america Uh, rabbi saperstein why don't you start and then whoever else wants to talk Historically, there was a sense of uh, each of us representing two groups that were amongst 
the most persecuted in Western history, um, uh, the enslavement of African Americans in America, Jews are quintessential victims of uh, of religious persecution um, and discrimination uh, throughout history, uh, and that bound us together. We each had a stake in America that made the concept of civil rights real for all Americans and work closely together. Not quite as intimate as the romantic view of the past was, but closer in the way we saw politics, in our political views, in voting for each other and supporting each other's agenda. Um, uh, here, uh, the disproportionate number of, of civil rights lawyers in the 20th century who were Jewish, um, the disproportionate number of white uh, young uh, freedom writers who were Jewish, uh, the special connection between uh, rabbis and uh, key pastors in the civil rights movement. All of that is part of the history. And we've continued to work together uh, closely, but we each are at different communities. Uh, the um, uh, There's a growing percentage of Jews of color uh, in which it's not just a white community versus a black community, but disproportionately Jews still are white and benefit from white privilege. Um, uh, but we have been allies, we'll remain allies. I know that only the enemies of social justice rejoice when we find ourselves at odds with each other. Um, our common task is to create America that lives up to its ideals and its promise of freedom and equality um, for all people. And the only way we'll secure the well-being of our individual communities will be to work together to finally achieve that. Other thoughts? Uh, Eddie well, Loud? Well, you know, just really quickly, I think it's very important for us to understand that, that these communities are complex, uh, that they're not reducible to any one particular view. There's no one-to-one -one correlation between Jewishness and certain politics or being Black in a certain politics. Uh, I think uh, uh, Robert Saperstein has, has wonderfully and brilliantly laid out uh, the historic connections but he's also indicated that there are ways in which whiteness kind of intervene, interrupt. Uh, James Baldwin has written about this powerfully, even as a recipient of, of the largesse of, of the New York intellectuals. He still wrote very, very insightfully about uh, how, how whiteness is read, even when it's um, seen within Jewish communities, right? In that light. And that's not the quite best way to put it. Uh, but there are political differences, right? The political differences around Israel, around Palestine, political differences around how one responds to race here. But then there are also these moments, what happened to the Tree of Life and what happened in Charlottesville, right? So, so the rise of white nationalism and how that expresses itself, right? Not only in terms of a kind of anti-Semitism as the kind of frame for a certain way of thinking about whiteness, right? Um, and it becomes the basis for uh, uh, moments of solidarity for us to imagine a more just world together. But let's let's begin by saying that folks are complicated <laughs> and we can't just engage in these broad descriptions of black Jewish relations. I think that's that's a relic of the past. We need to think about actual politics on the ground and wrap our minds around that. Uh, well, here's here's another question about actual politics from Philip Bentley. A very, very uh, uh, erudite question. What is the best kind of relationship between activists and government in getting legislation and policies that move forward? The Talmud warns, again, I, that's the first time we had a question we've had in months of doing, this, uh, doing these, these panels. The Talmud warns against getting, quote, too intimate with the ruling power. And I agree with that. 
Uh, should we promote and endorse candidates for office? Should we involve ourselves in party organizations? Or uh, should we work from outside of partisan politics? Um, and Annette Gordon-Reed, what do you think? Oh, I think you should do both. I mean, I, you should do, you should be flexible. You know, I, I can't tell activists what to do, but if I were in that category and watching people, I would expect act, activists to be outside if there are people who are doing things that promote the issues that the activists feel are important, then it's, I think it's good to speak out to support those kinds of things. You, you don't have one, bring one tool to the, to the, you know, to the, to the problem. And so I would think you do both of those kinds of things. So sort of standing off just for the sake of standing off when you could be supportive in something that's really, really key. Um, I think you should, they should be flexible. I guess uh, David Saberstein. I guess I guess implicit in the question is: Do you do you sacrifice uh, the power of a prophetic uh, mm-hmm. uh, stance by becoming too involved in politics? Which inevitably we 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 like we say positively that politics is is about compromise. Uh, so uh, inevitably you'll 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 be compromising. Certainly, every individual person, no matter what their religion, has the not only the right, but I believe the obligation to be involved in uh, in politics. Um, the role of, uh, of religion in general has been to be a prophetic voice, a moral goad to the conscience of the country. And our separation of church and state, one of America's distinctive contributions to the thinking of political structures um, in, in the world, and a country that served us well as the most religiously diverse country on the face of the earth, um, that uh, that separation of church and state benefited both government um, and religion. It, it protected religion from government interference with the wall, keeping government out of religion. Um, and it allowed, it was the first country that in our First Amendment of freedom of speech, uh, freedom of association, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances, um, ensured that we would uh, have the right to speak truth to power. Um, and so I think that kind of distance has served as well. Um, the tax laws that discourage uh, religious groups in order to have tax benefits from getting involved in, in partisan politics has both, I think, served religion well, uh, the moral discourse in America well, government well, and probably has served well the uh, houses of worship in America that the last thing, having enough divisions over the, the, uh, the clergy sermons and over the hymns and over all kinds of other things. The last thing we need to is impart our partisan divisions into the religious life of our houses of worship. Eddie Cloud, thoughts on this on this question? Well, you know, there always there's always the distinction between the court prophets, right, and the other. We can make that distinction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, I think it's important to understand that politicians inevitably disappoint. That's what they do. But politicians are also not. There are. They are only as good as what we demand of them. So the object of our organizing shouldn't, to my mind, cannot be reduced to uh, elections. Bob Moses, the great SNCC organizer, once told me that when when elections become the object of our organizing, elections by definition demobilize us. If we win, we're demobilized. If we lose, we we demobilize. So activists have to understand their role, but this is not right to to diminish the importance of 
of formal politics, of politicians themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just to echo Professor uh, Gordon Reed, uh, uh, you know, it's both and, it's not either or. Uh, but we have to understand the impact of what it means to have our organizing efforts be centered around elections, because politicians, whatever they do, they inevitably disappoint. (laughs) And I'm going to take a colossal personal privilege by noting completely irrelevantly that uh, Bob Moses, 10 years before I went there, was the center on the Stuyvesant High School basketball team. (laughs) Bob Moses was the center? (laughs) (laughs) It was Stuyvesant, the Stuyvesant Stuyvesant. basketball team. (laughs) Yes, Stuyvesant basketball team. Uh, uh, Here's a question that was submitted earlier. Uh, Annette uh, uh, Gordon-Reed, do you agree with Isabel Wilkerson's assertion in her book, Cast, uh, that America's race problems are rooted in a caste system? Do you you like the the word caste as a description of... uh, of where we are. Well, I wouldn't say rooted in it because I think race from the very beginning was important. I mean, the, the, the famous story of the, uh, the, the 20 Africans who arrived in Jamestown mm-hmm. uh, immediately after that, uh, they started passing laws and rules that treated them differently. They were in the same cast as indentured sir. I mean, you know, they were, they were both at the bottom of the rung, but, whites were treated better than blacks. So there was a, the race question is very, very old and it predates us. It's, I mean, you look at um, uh, Nell Painter's book, The History of White People and Winthrop Jordan's book, Quite Over Black. This has been something that's been there, you know, been, been a part of this for a long time. I mean, cast is, is another way of looking at it, but I, I would not substitute. I, I don't think that race can be taken out of it. Um, I was I was thinking about uh, all the work that you've done on on the Hemingses, and uh, thinking that in in colonial America, in in, in times of slavery, uh, even household slavery in the North, for that matter, uh, the lives of blacks and whites were they weren't equal. There was a, a complete complete uh, imbalance of power, but they were intertwined and they were very close and uh, uh, people knew one another, Not again, not on equal terms. And I wondered whether today in America, uh, whether, whether uh, blacks and whites know each other uh, typically or whether we've become more socially segregated in, in recent decades and uh, simply don't, don't have day in day out experiences that, that often close experiences with people of, uh, of another color. Uh, and is that, is that a, a problem for our times? Uh, Eddie Glaude, no, I saw it half a nod. Ab- no, absolutely. I mean, the data is very clear that our social networks are hyper segregated. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's all you need to do. Just do the thought experiment uh, about the last wedding you attended and think about how integrated it was or if it was at all. Right. Well, in so many ways, we're, we're walking mysteries to each other. Our intimate spaces are, 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 are deeply segregated. Um, and what stands in for knowledge of persons, of individuals, are a host and range of stereotypes about who people are and, and what they feel and what they believe and the like. And so we have to figure out, in light of that, how to be together differently. That is actually a reflection of a set of policy choices, a set of decisions, zoning laws that generate how neighborhoods are built, right? 
banking decisions, red line. I mean, there are a whole there 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 there's an entire gamut of micro decisions that have produced a world mm-hmm. where you and I are walking mysteries to each other. I'm at the height of my profession, but my golf partners, predominantly black. My drinking partners, predominantly black. Right. I mean, I could just go on, and that has everything to do with the kind of society we've been. So, my neighborhood looked like it was constituted by the UN. But even my associations within my neighborhood reflect temperament, my comfort zones and the like. We have to figure out how to be together differently, it seems to me. And it is key to to how we imagine America differently moving forward. Let me get, go on to another uh, question that was um, submitted. I think Rabbi needed it. Rabbi looked like he wanted to say something. Oh, I'm sorry, David. Did you want to comment on that? <laughs> I, I, I defer to Eddie Gloud. I think there are consequences to what w- was just being described here um, uh, uh, that have to do with how we respond to um, racism in our society. Um, there are those, particularly conservatives, who say, look, uh, e- equality means just treating everyone the same and group remedies that, you know, that. Uh, uh, try to deal with the group's affirmative action and other things just are un-American and violate the concept of this. Um, uh, But that kind of structural racism that we're talking about African-Americans were not brought here individually. They were brought here um, because of the race that they were part of um, in millions of people. The, um, uh, yeah, they're not discriminated in Jim Crow as individuals, but as a group. And group remedies have to be part of this if we're going to address it. Uh, uh, I mean, consider just uh, these words uh, here in, in terms of group remedies. Quote, years ago, we thought equal opportunity would solve the problem of the gap between the various communities. If we've learned anything in these last years, it is that equal opportunity is not sufficient. Preferential treatment is necessary if we are to bridge the gap and catch up that percentage of our population who through no fault of their own and because of centuries of cultural and educational discrimination could not compete. You know, who who said those words? Um, Martin Luther King, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, Angela Davis. Actually, these are the words of late prime Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was explaining how Israeli society was seeking to make real the promise of equality for its citizens who had come from Arab countries and lagged educationally behind those who had come from European countries, just as today it does for the black Jews of Ethiopia and as it does for too many Israeli Arabs. Although the medical field remains in Israel the most successfully integrated component of any Israeli profession. And this is true of, well, of the Rabin Medical Center, where a quarter of its staff, higher than uh, Israeli Arabs in the population, and a third of its patients are Israeli Arabs. The recognition of the structural issues often requires um, uh, preferential treatment or often requires group uh, addressing uh, the category of those segments as a whole in society who uh, have been structurally discriminated against. Um, And uh, this shows it's not just America's problem, but a problem of race uh, across the world. I have a, uh, I have a a law question when we have two, we have a, we have a law, we we actually have two people who teach law, one actual law professor on the panel. And that is, it concerns qualified immunity, uh, which is uh, the, doctrine by which uh, somebody who's operating under, uh, in, in the name of the state, the police officer, uh, is, 
his liability is significantly limited for actions that he commits when he's on the job, as I understand it. And from what I've read, it's a concept that that has some roots in constitutional, uh, in in uh, in uh, Supreme Court case law that uh, involving a guy I interviewed 50 years ago, Ernie Fitzgerald, the famous whistleblower who pointed out that uh, the Air Force had you know, lost two and a half billion dollars when that was a lot of money. Uh, if if the Congress were to pass a a law limiting uh, qualified immunity and saying that uh, police are more responsible for their actions when they're on the job, uh, would that be immediately uh, brought to the Supreme Court? And would today's court make it very difficult to sustain? Well, that that that's not a legal question, but a, a handicapping question. I mean, is it something that would have to pass a Supreme Court muster, uh, Professor Gordon Reed? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a made up rule. Yeah. It's not a constitutional rule. So they could, you know, people would, would protest that. But this is not something that is in the Constitution. You're, yes, not in the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, and it, it came about. And it's a judge made rule and it could be undone. Do you, David Saberstein, do you think that would uh, I, I, be instantly I, challenged and taken to court. Oh, it'll be instantly challenged and taken to court. Oh, but yeah. th- this is yeah, it'll be interesting challenged and taken to court. But people should know that this is not something. This is this is made up. And yeah, con- yeah. it was a uh, uh, yes. It, it, it was. I think and, that, and that's and I think the moves now to um, and this is something that has I can't say bipartisan, but. Certainly in the in the law professorate, there are conservatives and people on the left who are opposed to it uh, and say that this this has no place in in the jurisprudence. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned a point of, of consensus between people on, on, on left and right where in this entire discussion, uh, where are this where are the obvious uh, spots for progress? Where do we find things that actually cut across? Uh, party lines and uh, in stand a chance of of, of, of uh, winning uh, veto-proof majorities. First, David Saperstein, what what do the polls tell us about about uh, what most Americans and their representatives are okay with doing? That would be good. You know, there's a whole range of uh, of issues. Uh, the, the polls indicate an overwhelming consensus that we have to deal with environmental issues and the crisis facing us, the number of the economic justice um, uh, issues that we care about, uh, enjoy majority uh, support. As I said before, on the Voting Rights Act, uh, the, the last time in 2006 or eight, when it, it went before the Congress, it passed almost unanimously. Um, and it was signed again, reauthorized by a, a Republican president, which had happened before. Um, these had been uh, uh, consensus issues. The question is, will the hyperpartisanship we yeah. talked about before um, really prevent uh, uh, some kind of progress being made in these uh, in these issues. So uh, it, it remains to be seen at this point um, uh, what it will be. But, uh, you know, I think also on the foreign policy realm in terms of support for human right. rights, more assertive support for human rights in America, playing a more assertive leadership role in international organizations um, on COVID and other issues. It uh, uh, th- These issues do enjoy significant uh, bipartisan support. 
But in terms of, of, of issues related to the, the matters we've been discussing, hate crimes, for example, people generally think that's a good idea to prosecute hate crimes. I don't think that everybody generally agrees that some people mm-hmm. say that it's a matter of the First Amendment. Uh, and no, so I, I wouldn't say that that's one that there's. Do you see well, what, what would be the, 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 the most likely easy way ahead if there is any easy way ahead? Uh, with regards to with regards to race, yes, um, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. All right. she was asking you, Professor uh, Gordon. Oh no, uh, well, I, I, there has been some bipartisan support on the question of prisons mm-hmm. um, because conservatives think they cost too much, mm-hmm. and uh, people on the left who think that this is not a way <laughs> that this isn't the way to to handle criminal justice. Uh, most of the, there are other ways to to deal with those issues. So th- I don't know that that works for politicians. Uh, but people who are, you know, think tanks, things like that, there's some movement there. I don't, it's really hard to think of people coming together because one party is really um, sort of out there on, on these questions and fear their constituents, fear any kind of movement. If anybody moves to be conciliatory, uh, they fear a backlash. So I'm not terribly hopeful about things coming coming together with these particular group of people um, this, before yeah. we are now. This is going to take some un- picking things apart here. Eddie Gloud, you were to say. Yeah, and, and this this requires us to kind of settle down a bit and, and, and think a bit more carefully about what you mean by bipartisanship. Yeah. Right? What does that look like? Are we talking about bipartisanship among politicians? Mm-hmm. Right? Or are we talking about, you know, issues where the American public, where it's over 60, 70 percent? Mm-hmm. When we begin to think about, are we talking about the American public at large or writ large? Because we can talk about health care, where they stand. We could talk about student loans, where they stand. We could talk about uh, a range of issues, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Criminaliza- you know, decriminalization of marijuana, a range of issues where the American public writ large, they're much, mm-hmm. there's much more opportunity for, for what would seem to be bi- bipartisan uh, um uh, efforts than we actually see in our politics mm-hmm. among politicians. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes we have to ask ourselves, with whom are we talking about bipartisan relations? And what's the content of the positions of the yeah. folk that that we're trying to work across the aisle with? In my mind, Robert, and I'll be very, to, to my mind, and I'll be very explicit, there are some in our politics today that are the new redeemers. And I don't think we should be dealing with them at all because we have historical example of what it mean, what it meant to compromise with the previous redeemers. And we're still living, living with that. And I want to say that that's not a, that's not hyperbole. Remember what's mm-hmm. what Ted Cruz did on the Senate floor the night after the, on the day of, or the night after the day, I can't remember is right. Either the night or the next day, he invoked the Compromise of 1877 as a frame mm-hmm. for dealing with the, cert- yeah. the crisis around the certification yeah. of the election. This is the compromise that ultimately uh, completely so undid what was left of Reconstruction. And the, so uh, some people, I'm, I'm, I don't think, I'm, I want to be clear about who are we talking about yeah. compromising with. 
Yeah, well, that, if I could yes. just one, you asked about hate crimes, and uh, you know, I think there is kind of a consensus about hate crimes, just but divisions over what to do about them. I mean, I think there's a recognition that hate crimes are more than mere acts of violence, murders, beatings, arsons, desecration. Uh, they're an attack on the pillar of our republic and the guarantors of our freedom, a betrayal of the promise of America, and they erode our national well-being. And those who commit those crimes do so fully intending to tear at the too often frayed threads of diversity that bind America together. They seek to divide and conquer, and they seek to tear us apart from within, uh, pitting American against American. I think there's a sense of what that's about when we see, you know, uh, attacks on on uh, Mother Emanuel Church or right. on of life um, synagogue, uh, etc. And, uh, you know, as Martin Luther King said after the Birmingham church bombing, that those girls who perish have something to say to every politician who mm. is fed his constituents with the stale yeah. bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism. They say to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy which produced the murderer. I think there's a yeah. sense this is true, but what to do about it, then we break down over gun control and yeah. uh, a number yeah. of other steps that have to be taken. Well, listen, I, uh, I, speaking of America's promise, I have promises to you guys to, to get you <laughs> to the next, the next item on your, on your agenda. So David Saperstein, Professor Eddie Gloud, uh, Pro Professor Annette Gordon-Reed, thank you all very much for talking thank with you. us today. You guys were great. Uh, many thanks also to Joshua Plout, Nate Banzani, and Ronnie Giuliano from uh, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, uh, and our video and Zoom director, Bobby Grandone. Uh, our program is, uh, our sponsor of the program, rather, is the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, which is a 501c3 national charitable organization. It represents, uh, in the United States, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv. Uh, their website, by the way, is www.afrmc.org. Uh, join us next month for White Supremacy, How Big a Threat, How to Counter It, uh, with special guests Jonathan Greenblatt of uh, ADL, Professor Catherine Ballou of the University of Chicago, and uh, Professor Lawrence Rosenthal of UC Berkeley, uh, the uh, UC Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Abnormal. See you next month. Uh, stay healthy and stay safe. <laughs>